Hey guys, welcome to episode 15 of the Mysterious Fendix Society Read Aloud Podcast Book 3. Today we'll be reading chapter 15, but first a recap of chapter 14. After realizing Kate was walking into a trap, Rennie Seguin Constance left a note for Mr. Benedict at the library and went to try and get to her before it was too late. They were almost spotted by two tenmen on their way, but luckily they were overlooked. Rennie and Siggy ran with Constance through a dark subway station to try and save some time instead of getting through the crowded streets above. They did save a little time, but unfortunately, they were too late in saving Kate, and the ten men captured them all. The ten men put the children in a car and drove for them hours to reach Mr. Curtin. Meanwhile, Rennie could think of no way out of this. They were completely trapped. Okay, guys, so that's the end of the summary, but I have some shout-outs to give. So, a shout-out to Ember. Thank you for asking for a shout-out. That is totally fine, guys. You can always ask me. Sarah, for your very nice voice message. And Super Sing Song for your review on Apple Podcasts. It was very nice, um, and I really appreciate it. Okay, enjoy the episode, guys. Chapter 15, The Shark and His Prey. They rode for a time in silence. Despite their dread of what lay ahead, the children were all hoping the trip would end soon. They were horribly uncomfortable from sitting for so long. The early morning sun shone painfully into their eyes, even through the blindfolds, and everyone was thirsty. Constance made a point of uttering dry, raspy noises and smacking her lips until Crawlings growled and told her to stop. Garrett, said Sharp, be a good fellow and switch on the radio, will you? I'm curious what people are saying about last night. Garrett switched on the radio. The children perked up their ears. A news reporter was speaking excitedly. Entire city. Again, it's a wondrous display of efficient technology. Martha and the real hardship of that part of Jim Precious. The turbines, apparently, were not even connected to the grid yet, but Precious's technicians pulled off an overnight miracle. It's really something, John. And for the benefit of those just tuning in, will you quickly repeat what you've learned about Stonetown's new power source? Right, well, just after the shocking crash of the computer systems that managed the city's power grid, Mr. Jim Precious, the wealthy entrepreneur, stepped forward to offer an emergency alternative. It seems Mr. Precious owns a tidal turbine system invented by Mr. Lothodra Curtin, the noted scientist and educator. The turbines are located in Stonetown Bay. The National Guard was immediately deployed to protect them, incidentally, and thanks to the urgent efforts of Mr. Precious and his experts, they began supplying power to Stonetown just before dawn. All of this according to the government's official statement, Martha, which was released after communications were restored about 20 minutes ago. And still no explanation for the communications outage? Unfortunately, no. Obviously, it was connected to the blackout, but authorities are at a loss to explain it. In fact, according to Mr. Precious, there's only one scientist in the world with a sufficient understanding of energy anomalies and invisible waveforms to explain what happened, much less present it's happening again, and that's his friend Lethodra Curtin. The children sucked in their breath. Could this really be going what they thought it was going? I'll remind our listeners that Mr. Curtin is the man who invented the tidal turbines, said the anchor woman. So has Mr. Curtin been involved in any of this, John? Apparently not, Martha. He's a famously private individual, extremely reclusive, and in fact, his current whereabouts are unknown. Our listeners may recall that his well-regarded institute closed over a year ago under mysterious circumstances. It wasn't mysterious to us, Kate snarled, unable to contain herself. Hush, Kitty, McCracken murmured. His alleged involvement in possible crime activity. Alleged, Kate muttered indignantly. Possible. I won't warn you again, said McCracken. Some of us are trying to enjoy the program. 
As you said, John, and follow up on any developments as the government seeks to contact Mr. Curtin. Meanwhile, we're receiving a lot of reports of actual criminal activity due to the outages. Isn't that right? Yes, indeed, Martha. Apparently, looters and burglars are having a field day, or field night, rather, in Stonetown during these long, dark, and quiet hours. At McCracken's behest, Garrett checked to see what was being said on the other radio stations. It was all the same. A terrifying night, mounting fears that would happen again. Mr. Precious, a civic hero, and an urgent need to locate and consult the premium scientist, Lepodger Curtin. The radio voices went on and on, and Rennie was developing a fierce headache. The relentless bright sunlight wasn't helping. Its glare intensified as it passed through the windows, and even with the blindfold and his eyes closed, he could feel its heat on his face. He dared not to cover his eyes for his hands for the fear the Tim would think he was trying to remove his blindfold. And when he tried to shift position, Sharp ordered him to sit still. But physical discomfort was the least of Rennie's concerns at the moment, for he saw quite plainly what Mr. Curtin was hoping to achieve, and that everything was going exactly as planned. Mr. Curtin's possible criminal activity had always been classified. The public knew nothing of it, and most of the people in government who did were simply accepting what their superiors told them. It was just a few high officials' minds changed. So, too, with the official position on Mr. Curtin's guilt. After all, the most important piece of physical evidence in his case, the Whisperer itself, was believed to have been destroyed. No matter that some people, including the children, knew what really happened to the Whisperer, these were already being dealt with. After about an hour on the highway, the van turned off, wound along a twisting side of road for perhaps five minutes more, then finally came to a stop. We're here, McCracken announced to his radio. I see you, a man's voice replied while open up. There came a rattling, clanking sound, as if a large gate or drawbridge were being opened, and the van started forward again. After some maneuvering, some muttered cursing, and some jibes from the other ten men about Garrett's parking, the van doors were flung open and the children unloaded. They were marched into a building and up several flights of stairs, where, thanks to Constance's insistent whining, they were given water to drink and one minute apiece in the cold bathroom. But not until they had been curled in a bright, dark room, where their blindfolds were removed. The ten men whipped them off in a flourish and withdrew to the doorway. The first thing the children saw was Mr. Curtin. He appearance startled them, for though the ten men had kept up their cheerful banter, no one had heard Mr. Curtin's voice or any other indication of his presence. But here he was in all his creepy glory, and the spitting image of Mr. Benedict saved for his haughty expression. His more carefully combed white hair, and the slightly different plaid pattern of his green suit. He was squatting, not sitting, in the seat of his wheelchair, his forearms resting upon his knees. And he was silently circling them like a shark around his prey. His cold green eyes darted from face to face. He licked his lips, then pressed them tightly together, suppressing a smile. His wheelchair made absolutely no sound at all. He circled them once, twice, three times, expertly maneuvering his wheelchair with the subtle manipulations of this handhold remote control. He circled so close that he could have easily reached out and scratched them. And perhaps he would, when he thought. He did have the air of someone planning something nasty. And to make matters even worse, the children found themselves quite inside the wheelchair's eerie bubble of silence. Kate was frowning in irritation, having let a fly a snappy comment, only to have it pass unnoticed while Sticky, for his part, was grateful no one had heard him whimper. And still, Mr. Curtin circled and circled. Through helpless to act, none of them wished to give Mr. Curtin the satisfaction of seeing them so frightened, and after his fifth or sixth circuit, they stopped twisting to keep their eyes on him when he passed behind them. Fixing their gazes ahead, they endured this bizarre and menacing behavior, with what little composure they could manage. 
Rennie took the opportunity to study the depressing, unvarying features of the room. Large, empty metal bookcases stood against each of the three walls he could see, their shelves quoted in dust. A desk, equally empty and dusty, stood right up against one of them, and everything looked slightly askew. The furniture seemed to have been shoved against the walls to clear space in the room. Behind them, he knew, was a door through which they had just entered. Otherwise, the room appeared to have no exits. Not even for Kate, unfortunately. The ceiling was plaster, the heating register too small to squeeze through. Judging from the decor and the dust, the room was a dull office that had been some time out of use. Mr. Curtin glided before them a seventh time, then an eighth, fully smiling now, no longer trying to suppress it. Rennie glanced nervously at him, then quickly glanced away. Who knew what this madman was up to? Was he trying to disorient them? Confuse them? The wheelchair came around again. With a start, Rennie saw that was empty. Boo! roared Mr. Curtin from right behind them, and the children fairly leaped out of their skins. They began to see him leering down at them from his full height. Delighted by their startled faces, he let loose with his grating, screechy laugh and waggled his fingers at them. You see, Mr. Curtin said as his wheelchair circled round to him again. If you grow too used to something, you too complacent, you are easily caught off guard. I'm afraid you children grew far too used to having luck fall your way, and far too bold because of it. So very much like Benedict. Not that I am complaining, of course. Your predictability has served me well. Is this your new office? Kate asked, glancing about in an appraising way. Cold, dusty, empty. It suits you, I think. Mr. Kern's smile faded. From the doorway came a sound of a hastily swallowed chuckle. Mr. Curtin glanced at the ten men, crawling but staring at his feet, then reached inside his suit coat and took out a pair of shiny silver gloves. At the sight of these, the children flinched and recoiled, recalling with a painful clarity how it felt to be touched by them. "'Miss Weatherall,' said Mr. Curtin, as he tugged the gloves on, "'did you not hear what I just said about being too bold?' "'Mr. Curtin! Mr. Curtin, sir!' cried a familiar voice, and barging into the room, squeezing with some difficulty through the group of ten men, came none other than S. Cupidellian. The van's here. Mr. Curtin scowled and turned on him, waving his arms. Of course the van is here, S.Q. Look around you. What do you see, hmm? Though, whom did you just pass into this room? Are they not the very men we expected to arrive in the van? And who are these children before me? Are they not the very ones I expected to be brought to me in the van? S.Q. blinked and looked over at the snickering ten men. I'm, I'm sorry, sir. I just got excited when I saw it, and... He started nodding greeting at the children caught himself, and turned away from them. It won't happen again, I promise. Mr. Curtin rolled his eyes in exasperation. Of course it won't, you idiot. How could it? He held up one hand to stop Eskew from speaking. Do not try to answer that. Shaking his head, he contemplated his gloves for a moment, then sighed slowly and began taking them off. And now, thanks to your interruption, I found my enthusiasm for using these as past, perhaps later. Kate looked gratefully at Eskew, but he would not meet her eye. She vividly remembered the last time they had seen each other. S.Q. had been deceived by Mr. Benedict and the children. The deception, unfortunately, was vital to their escape, and was utterly distraught. No matter that his distress resulted more from his fear of Mr. Curtin's anger than from anything else. It was the deception that he had fixated on, and Kate wondered how he felt about it now. If she hadn't known better, she might have thought his blundering entrance was a ruse, but to spare her the silver gloves. But did she know better? As Mr. Curtin tucked away the gloves and climbed into his wheelchair again, Kate studied S.Q.'s bland and passive face. Was he really thinking? He looked the same as ever, though perhaps he had grown into his gangly frame a bit. Yes, he most certainly had filled out, and the boots on his oversized feet had developed gaps along the seams. He desperately needed new ones. But Kate and the others knew Mr. Curtin's dark secret now. They knew how he had manipulated S.Q.'s kind nature. 
Time had passed, was passing still, so might not SQ be starting to grow beyond the man's influence? If so, his suburban manner wasn't revealing it. If anything, he seemed more eager than ever to please Mr. Curtin, or at least to avoid incurring his wrath. Even the internally optimistic Kate had to admit the possibility that SQ still felt loyal to Mr. Curtin, and still felt betrayed by Mr. Benedict and the children. They certainly couldn't count on his help. I shall not abide further interruptions, Mr. Curtin said. Therefore, I advise you children not to speak unless you are specifically told to do so. Do I make myself clear? Kate and the boys nodded. Constance opened her mouth to respond, but Kate quickly clapped her hand over it. Mr. Curtin smirked. Much better. You may have noticed that I often prefer silence. His wheelchair backed away from them, and crossing his legs in a relaxed manner, he continued in scarcely more than a whisper, forcing them to lean forward and strain their ears. Here is what I expect of you. You will remain quietly in this room, causing no disturbance whatsoever. Failure to comply shall result in immediate punishment. You will eventually be given some food, so do refrain from asking for it. The same is true for bathroom visits. In fact, your best course of action, the one least likely to result in punishment, will be to lie still on the floor with your eyes and mouths closed. Mr. Curtin stared at them in a long moment to be sure he'd been understood. Then he whirred about in his wheelchair and rocketed out the doorway, moving with such speed and force that if the ten men had not expected it and stepped neatly aside, they would have been scattered like bowling pins. With winks and smiles, they followed their employer out, and S.Q. brought up the rear, hurriedly closing and locking the door behind him with a nary glance at the children. As soon as the door closed, Kate turned to the others and whispered, I'm so sorry. I should have waited for Winnie to think things through. We'd never have gotten into this mess if I had. I would have said no so sooner, but we were never alone. Oh, this is my fault. Forget it, Winnie said. You just wanted to spot Mr. Curtin. We all did. I still do, actually, said Sticky, before he does, well, whatever he's going to do to us. Constance, who had slept almost the entire time in the van, was still groggy and exceedingly cross. And now, in response to Kate's apologies, he said, You're sorry? We get packed in a van like sardines in a can. I just sit by Stinky Tin Man, thirsty and terrified hour after hour, certain that Curtin has us in his power. And you say you're sorry? You think sorry covers it? Constance, Rennie scolded, and Siggy shot her a disapproving look. Kate bit her tongue. In recent months, she had finally come up with a rhyming response for the next time Constance attacked her in a verse. At long last, she had hit upon ronstruments and a suitable crime for Constance, and she'd been most eager to use it. But the timing was all wrong, and so she said lightly, Sorry, we'll have to do for now, Connie girl. Constance, ashamed from her outburst, but in no mood to admit it, sat on the floor and covered her eyes with her hands. The events of the past several minutes had all seemed far too loud and upsetting, and at the moment she simply wished she could hide inside her own little shell like a turtle. Kate turned to the boys. So what do you think he intends to do with us? Why did he tell the tin men he wanted us awake and alert? He wants us to trade us for something, right? Rennie said. I think he means to show Mr. Benedict we haven't been brainswept. That way he can threaten to use a whisper on us if Mr. Benedict doesn't give him what he wants. So he wants us to be able to prove we still have our memories, Kate said. My, how practical of him. Well, guess what? If it comes to that, I'm going to pretend to be brainswept just to get his goat. Let's not let it come to that, Rennie said, walking over to the light switch. We need to get out of here. So you're turning off the light? asked Stiggy, perplexed. I'm looking for the window, Rennie said, throwing the switch. The room went dark, but not completely so. A faint glow of sunlight glittered from behind one of the big metal bookcases. We need to move that bookcase, he said, turning the lights back on. Kate hurried to inspect the bookcase. Awfully heavy, she murmured. 
It'll be noisy to slide it. Anyway, we'll want to be able to put it back fast. Here, give me a hand with the desk. The boys on one end and Kate on the other, and Constance uncovering her eyes to supervise. They carried the desk to where Kate wanted it. Then, moving slowly with uttermost caution, they tilted the bookcase forward until its top rested against the desk. The metal shelves groaned and twanged, but only a little. And after a tense few moments of listening, they decided no one was coming to check on them. Crowding into the narrow space behind the tilted bookcase, they peered out of the large, dirt-streaked window they had exposed. The view was not very encouraging. Three stories below them lay a kind of bleak square courtyard, sparsely covered with dead brown grass, and surrounded by four brick buildings, or rather, four wings of the same building, four stories high. The wings were identical, with identical flat roofs and identical long rows of dirty windows. The arrangement reminded Brenny of a hospital he had visited once, and Sticky of a dreary office complex where his mother used to work. But there was no obvious clue to what this place was, or used to be, rather. The only thing that seemed certain was that it had been abandoned and neglected for a while. What do you think? Rennie murmured to Kate. I still have your rope. Kate was craning her neck that way in this. I'm glad, but it's not going to be much use. We're too high up. She studied the roofs across the courtyard for clues about the roof directly above them, then shook her head. There's no good way to climb up either, not even a gargoyle to lasso, just standard old gutters. Although, she frowned. No, never mind, that wouldn't work. What were you going to say, Stiggy asked. Maybe if the rest of us hear it. No, really, it won't work. It was quite like Kate to say something couldn't work, much less to refuse even to discuss it. Everybody looked at her quizzically. She might have been an accomplished trickster around her enemies, but to her friends she was remarkably transparent. What are you trying to hide, Kate? Rennie asked. What's going on? Kate had walked away from the windows to dismiss it out of hand. Nothing, I'll tell you later. Right now, we should put the bookcase back up. She thinks she could get away, exclaimed Constance, who had been staring keenly at Kate's troubled face. Kate looked stunned and then quickly tried to recover, but try as she might, she couldn't hide her guilty expression. She could hardly have looked more shamefaced if she'd been caught stealing. Is that right, Kate? Stiggy asked, his eyes growing round with hope. But that's great. Why wouldn't you tell us? Kate shook her head, fretfully kneading her brow. I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. It's not like I can't keep from having ideas, right? I didn't mean to. Rennie was going to ask Kate what in the world she was talking about. She seemed to misunderstood Siggy's question, when suddenly he understood. Kate believed she could get away, but not the rest of them, and she wasn't about to leave her friends behind. She was ashamed even to have thought of it. Kate, Rennie said urgently, listen, you have to do it. If you think you can, you have to. It's our best chance. You could figure out where we are, then find your way back to Mr. Benedict and the others. They'll know what to do to rescue us, don't you see? Kate was bouncing on the balls of her feet, her face tense with distress. In fact, she looked like someone who desperately needed to find a bathroom. Oh, of course I see, Rennie, but how can I possibly... No, I just can't do it. Stiggy grabbed her arm. Yes, you can, Kate. You can and you will. Don't worry about us, we'll be all right, but only if you go and get help. Rarely had Stiggy spoken with such force, and Kate was somewhat taken aback. She stood blinking at him a moment, then gave a smite, tall nod. You're right, I'm... I know you can manage without me, of course, and all right, I'll go. Her decision was made. Kate was once again her usual self, and her usual self was all action. Retrieving a rope and Swiss army knife from Rennie, she wrapped the rope around her waist, tucked her shirt over it so that it was hidden, then opened a short blade on her knife. She had already noticed the window was painted shut, and with precise, deft strokes, she began to work away along the frame, cutting through the paint. As Sticky and Constance watched her work, Rennie was watching Sticky. Now that his forceful speech to Kate was finished, he seemed more anxious than ever. In fact, he was gazing mournfully at Kate, as if he would never see her again. And Rennie was struck by a sudden realization. 
Sticky had done his best to convince Kate to go, not because he thought she could save them, a doubtful prospect at best, but simply because he hoped she could save herself. And he said exactly the right thing, too, Rennie thought. He knew she needed to see that we'd be all right. Rennie turned away, fairly overcome by a surge of emotions, pride in his friend, concern for Kate's safety, and fear that Sticky was right, that they might not ever see Kate again. He started pacing the room, averting his eyes. Kate needed to go at once. She didn't need distractions. And so Rennie paced, and he, as his thoughts circled around Kate's escape attempt. What if someone was watching out one of those other windows? What if she had to break a window or pick a lock to get out of that courtyard? Could she do it that quietly? And how did she mean to get down into the courtyard anyway? Rennie went over these questions again and again, until he was so distracted himself that Constance had to speak his name twice to get his attention. "'Clean out your ears, Rennie,' she said. "'Kate's ready!' Rennie turned to see the others looking at him. Kate had gotten the window open and apparently had already said her goodbyes to Sticky and Constance. She was beaming at him, her old confident self, and despite his strange turmoil of emotion, Rennie couldn't help but smile back. He hurried over and hugged her. "'Be careful,' he said. Kate winked. "'You know me.' And with that, she leaped out the window." Thank mm-hmm. you.